0: That was my cat purring. He might be doing that through the whole thing. And I hope it brings you comfort. Yeah, we're not going to... Yeah.
1: No music on this episode. Just cat purrs.
0: Just cat purrs. As we discuss, uh, a couple of books that were graciously sent to us by Lexham Press. Um, It's part of their uh, series called Christian Essentials. And there are two out as of now. There is one, the first one is The Apostles' Creed, and that was written by Ben Myers. And the second one is The Lord's Prayer by Wesley Hill. Um, welcome, to Pod- <laughs> <Petristica>. <laughs> welcome to Podcastica Patristica. Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. I am one of your hosts, Tyler Stanley.
1: And I'm Gerhard Steuben.
0: He's the other host. So, like I said, we're going to be discussing uh, these two little books that were sent to us by Lexham Press. They are sort of like very basic introductory texts to understanding these very important parts of the Christian faith, uh, the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer.
1: So, in the preface to the series, um, the, the authors point out that there's a long christian tradition of having these succinct christian traditional texts these forms of content um, that are key to understanding the nature of the christian faith there is the apostles creed the lord's prayer the ten commandments these these among others form the basis of christian catechesis of christian uh, instruction all throughout history and so when luther writes his catechism What does he write it on? He doesn't have to start afresh and say, what do I think the most important Christian topics to talk about are? He talks about the Ten Commandments and its relevance for you as a 16th century Christian. He talks about the Lord's Prayer. These historic forms of content um, have always formed Christian imagination, Christian ethics, and have been understood as the basics of what you need to believe and to do to be an orthodox, good-standing Christian. And Lexan Press is actually doing a really interesting and important project in creating guides, uh, not quite commentaries, uh, not quite even reflections, but something in between guides to thinking about praying and living these texts. I'm thinking, it reminds me of a passage from one of N.T. Wright's books. how god became king at the end he talks about um the idea of when you pray the lord's prayer you should have a wealth of background knowledge as much as you can you should keep digging through your entire christian life so that as you pray each one of the lines and um, this whole complex network of ideas shoots off in your brain and um, this is drawn from a discussion of that c.s lewis had and he uses the awful british word festooning like (laughs) these ideas should festoon on one another i don't quite know what it means but it sounds like a mushroom or something uh
0: so isn't that like a something on a castle
1: festoon sounds like a i don't know like a a orb made of poisonous gas (laughs) so the idea is that you um so as you pray our father who art in heaven In the back of, uh, oh, yeah, it's a uh, chain of garland or flowers, leaves, or
0: ribbons. We can cut. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: the idea is that as you pray, our Father who art in heaven, you're saying the words and you're meaning them, but in the back of your mind, in your subconscious, in areas that you could pull on if you tried, are all informing the meaning of, like, what, what does it mean our? What does it mean Father? What is what does father have to do here and how what are all the ways i can understand it and how can in, inform my life what is heaven what does it mean for god to be in heaven and um, so these these ways in which you can pull apart the words to find more and more meaning um, Lexham is doing a really interesting work in trying to provide really popular really readable guides that are full of um allusions to the lord's prayers many meanings in the rest of scripture or the apostles creed's many meanings in relation to patristic authors and the heresies they were combating and so i think that these are really useful guides in order to create that festooning right in order to create that bubbling up of ideas under the surface of the words that we're praying
0: so i guess that's a good segue to to talk about uh you said these are useful, so who might use this? Like we said, these are pretty introductory level. They're not super sophisticated. They, they don't read like, they're not critical commentaries. They're, they're reflections on the text with uh, references to Christian sources throughout history from the biblical text itself to patristic authors To medieval authors and modern authors basically the authors of these little guides want to help their readers to drink from that well of Christian tradition to understand these texts as it comes to us through history to look at them through the lens of all of the people who have read it before us so just like Gerhard was saying we need to read these with with all of that garland festooned upon it <laughs> but they're not super sophisticated i'm not going to get a lot of uh like technical help from these but devotionally they're great mm-hmm. um as i read through it there were you know spiritual application uh, it was really uh, thoughtful and meaningful i think I think the kind of people who might benefit from this, it might be helpful in a Sunday school type setting, a small group type setting. If you want to go through the Apostles' Creed, have everyone buy this little book. Uh, I know the Lord's Prayer is about a, a hundred pages, and all and like twenty five percent of that actually has like art covering the page, so it's less than a hundred pages. Which I I do want to point out, the art on these is fantastic. Oh, it's
1: stunning. Whoever made these. You are one of the best graphic designers I've ever encountered. Your work. In fact, I'm gonna look up who it is. Big shout out to Eliezer Ruiz, Brittany Schrock, and Abigail Stalker. You guys are amazing.
0: I think I think this is another level of helping us to read these texts in a meaningful way is to give us so uh, both of the the two books that are out right now, both of them. The cover art featured on it is a very rich and detailed um, stained glass, and then throughout the inside of the book, pieces of that stained glass are highlighted at the beginning of the sections um, that sort of color the way you, you think about it as you, as you go through it. So pay attention to the art as you read these and i think that's the cool thing about these books is that they're taking from all of these different um they're trying to to get all of your senses involved in thinking through these essential statements of the christian faith and i think that's a really awesome thing and they're doing a fantastic job with it
1: it's helpful commentary on beautiful texts done beautifully and yeah yeah, there's value to that like it feels good reading them, and that's a weird thing to say with regard to a book.
0: Yeah.
1: So when we were talking about who, sh- who are these books for, um, and Tyler was mentioning that they have a very strong devotional aspect and they're not overly technical. So, you know, they're written for um, people and not just scholars. But scholars are also people. And so I, as I was reading this, I thought these are books for people who pray. These are books for people who pray the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, and um, they're really helpful in that. Even if not necessarily everything will be new to you, which they not have, not most things will be. Most things will probably not be new to people who have some formal theological education, but some things will be because these are serious, important scholars in their fields, um, and again, their personalities come out. Uh, Wesley Hill. Um, is a biblical study scholar. And so his book on the Lord's Prayer is filled with sort of the uh, textual resonances from across scripture. So he's pulling on what does father mean in the Old Testament, and how does that change into the New Testament, and what does the change itself mean. And and Ben Meyer's book draws on just a wealth of knowledge about uh, patristic commentaries on... um, topics in the Apostles' Creed, draws on extensive knowledge of important church fathers and the sort of uh, theological arguments that were being engaged in the time of the writing of the creeds. And so not only do they give you, the books give you a sort of praying window, window into the text themselves, but into the broader world of the texts, which can be really helpful for, again, festooning as we pray
0: all right so let's get into these texts um so we can start with the apostles creed and uh why don't we these are short statements of the christian faith so uh why don't we just before we talk about the text let's just read it go for it gerhard
1: all right so this is the apostles creed in the version um that the text gives i believe in god the father almighty maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, in the life everlasting. Amen. So, like I mentioned before, there's not necessarily an argument or a consistent theme that runs throughout the text, but it's a window and reflection on the specific articles of the text. So, Dr. Myers gives an analysis of all of the important words in the text beginning with I. So he's asking, actually the book begins and ends with the question, I, because when we say the creed, we say, I believe in God the Father. And so from the beginning to the end of this book, he's reflecting on the nature of the I who confesses the creed. And he does something um, that I think is interesting and maybe worth talking about, which is the sort of uh, turn to a mystical I. So part of what's engaged here is that in people, in traditions that pray the creed, um, sometimes I believe in God the Father is replaced with we believe in God the Father in order to make it a more communal experience. So it's not just that I personally am saying the creed, but we together as a church who are all saying it at this one place in this one space and time are confessing it together. And that's an interesting way to approach it but Ben Myers makes the argument that this actually cheapens the communal element of the Lord's Prayer. So when we say I rather than we uh, believe in God the Father, what we're saying is on the one hand, yes, it is I, the physical person, me, Gerhard Stubin, confessing that I do believe in God the Father. But on the other hand, I confess as part of the single body of Christ, I, I in mystical communion, with all Christians throughout space and time are confessing the creed together and so that when we say I believe what we're saying is that I am part of the historic body of Christ the communion of saints of all who've lived and died and who are now confessing the creed with God the Father in heaven eternally those who not only believe in God but see God and experience God and that sort of discussion is the type of discussion that we find in this book. It's a theological reflection oriented towards our own lives that engages the issues raised by the wording of the texts. We can make so much meaning out of just I and the sometimes liturgical difference, we. Now, is it bad to say we? No. Is it better to say I? According to... Ben Myers, maybe. But the important point is that we can drill down into these uh, gifts that we've been given by the church and reorient our lives based on reflection of them, and we will never run out of meaning to gain from them, and we'll always um, be able to draw life and meaning from them. So speaking of the exact wording of the texts speaking of drawing extra meaning out of the extra out of the specific wording of the texts so tyler this is a discussion that we can have just sort of off the cuff we haven't rehearsed this but what's authoritative about the apostles creed what's important about the apostles creed is it the intention behind the words or is it the words themselves Mm. and how would we you put out a twitter poll about this the other day didn't <laughs> i did yeah yeah okay. and yeah i, remember yeah, your response, I
0: responded because yeah. in actually i don't know I, I, and what I... do we mean by authority right yeah.
1: how does the apostles Creed authoritative
0: i'd say in good baptist fashion i would say that there is there is an element of authority in the creeds and i would put that in in the intent of it, rather than the word, the words of it, um, because ultimately, like, I mean, we get into language games that I don't think are helpful if we say that it's in the wording of it, and, and I think, so just to bring up a, a, an issue that really needs far more explanation, think about, like, the Nestorian controversies. Like, Nestorius was labeled a heretic in his day, and uh, who was his main opponent in the like so-called Orthodox side, Cyril. They argued with each other about the two natures of Christ, and Nestorius was saying that there is the divine and the human, and... These two are, are separate. He wanted to really distinguish these two, and Cyril wanted to have a more unified... He admitted there is divine and human, but he wanted to really say, you can't separate these. And, you know, Nestorius wanted to say, well, God didn't die on the cross. Uh, his divine self didn't die on the cross. His human self died on the cross. And Cyril gets mad, and lots of years and years of controversies... But in the end, like when you look at what they actually say, they were agreeing. And that's why I don't think it, that's a very roundabout way of saying I think there's a problem in saying that the wording is what's important because whenever we get there, we get into unhelpful language games and language barriers, which was the issue of like Nestorius and Cyril, where they are speaking to literally different languages and that causes them to talk past each other so i don't want to say the intent is i don't want to say that the authorities and the words i want to say that it's in the intent Hmm. what is the apostles creed telling us to affirm and what, what is it telling us to deny um it's telling us to affirm bodily resurrection let's affirm that
1: okay uh one way we get into this is uh could you affirm the resurrection of the body and not mean the physical body and instead mean something like the spiritual body? I think that's being raised by some people today. Um, I mean,
0: it's always been raised by some people somewhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I think that would, like, would it be breaking the Apostles' Creed in order to, if you said, I believe in the resurrection of the body? and meant something like i believe in the resurrection of a spiritual body.
0: Well, maybe maybe i'm being two-faced on this, but i so all we have to communicate with are words and i want to say that the intent of the words is what matters. The which means we have to look at the words themselves. The the, the words inform the intent. Okay. So, I, yeah. what I, so what I want to say is, like, I don't have to say this in the original Greek. If I understand what the authors were trying to convey, the exact words don't matter. So the original Greek is sarkos, flesh. The resurrection of the flesh is what it says. And I would be stunned if there if you can find an example in in ancient greek literature where sarkos doesn't where it means like ethereal yeah i mean spirit the, the only thing there you are can, words yeah. for spirit there are words for soul
1: yeah i mean you could say paul's sinful nature but that wouldn't make any sense right like it wouldn't make sense to have the resurrection of the sinful nature yeah
0: so so what i want to say is the original the words matter in so far as they give us what we can attain of the intent if that makes sense
1: yeah so like uh what matters is the intention behind setting up the agreement and the agreement with the church about this is what we believe but that is only accessible through the words themselves in the same way that what matters about scripture is the message about jesus but the only way to get the message about Jesus is through the text of scriptures. So the scriptures really do point to Jesus, but they aren't in themselves. Like they are in themselves God's message because they point to God's real message. And they are yeah. the only way of accessing that message.
0: Yeah. we Words are signposts, and if we say that the words aren't important, then we've just removed all our signposts. Right. You won't
1: get to where you're going because yeah. you don't know where to go. Yeah. so. It's I mean, speaking of the meaning, what's the... Why even get back to the meaning? This is a confession of the church at one time. Why is it any more important as than the confession of the church today? Why is the Apostles' Creed any more valuable than, say, the Barman Declaration? Which, for those who aren't aware, is the... Um, is the... Not quite creed, but maybe confession of the... Uh, the confessing Christians under the Nazi occupation written by Karl Barth making the claim that only the only true Christians in the sort of German realms are the Christians who reject Nazi rule so why is the Apostles' Creed any more important than the Barman Declaration if they're they're both confessions of the church's faith
0: I think there and this gets back to the question of authority and we've talked about that many times uh, through our episodes here for me i would say it's closeness to the source being jesus like jesus gives authority to the apostles to teach the apostles creed is a distillation of the teaching of the apostles that's that's the point of it
1: ben myers gives a really interesting uh, and just traditional story this is what sort of okay. get when you first start studying the apostles creed is the early church talked about it as if uh, it was li- not just literally the apostles but like each of the uh the first apostles got together and contributed one line <laughs> is the story and so that you know like john gave i believe in god the father you know like peter gave uh, he suffered under pontius Pilate. that's important <laughs> uh, but the the legend expresses the essential idea which is true that this is, like Tyler said, a distillation of the apostolic teaching, which you also know of as the Bible.
0: Yeah. No, that's... I mean, you bring up a good question, though, with the Barman Declaration, because Barman, that confession, was to address specific problems that the church in Germany was dealing with, and the the faithful few who wanted to preserve a true faithful witness through that, put together a document to distill what they believe uh, specifically in that context. And the Apostles' Creed is no different. Mm -hmm. The Apostles' Creed is dealing with uh, trying to um, prevent people from accepting heterodox and heretical views. It was put in these words because they, like I said before, like they want you to affirm certain things and they want you to deny certain things. They want you to affirm that Jesus Christ is God's son. They want you to affirm the resurrection of the flesh.
1: See, this is an interesting thing is so like, as I'm reflecting back on the Apostles Creed and I'm not like a specialist in patristics or anything, but I've done quite a bit of study, I don't know who any line of the creed would be directed against really
0: i mean it would if i remember correctly think there may have been like a dissetic teaching that this may have been going against so to say jesus christ was conceived by the holy spirit but born of the virgin mary suffered under under pontius pilate crucified died and was buried on the third day he rose again from the dead so it's and then there's the resurrection of the flesh So, it's basically, if I remember correctly, it's to say, like, Jesus was a real, actual, human, physical person who is the Son of God conceived of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Um, I mean, that
1: that definitely could be, that's probably the most. So, that's
0: the denial that, you know, we deny. By confessing this creed, we are denying Mm -hmm. that Jesus was just a, you know, phantom. Right. Uh, Or denying that Jesus was just a person who was uh, really beloved by God.
1: Right. And that, I mean, that very well may be the case, and it could be, or it definitely was the function of the text. Like, you had to deny those things in order to continue confessing the creed. It strikes me as different, though, than, like, the Nicene Creed, which is very directed against one figure, or the Chalcedonian definition, which is very directed against, like, one rung of teaching but like the Apostles Creed like if you maybe it would be an interesting experiment to do like uh, people who have just gotten through like some sort of a intensive study of the New Testament right and just ask them to list out what are the most important things of the New Testament I wonder how close they would actually come to the Apostles Creed because it's just these important themes from the New Testament right you've got the creator God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth. Like it's always drawing back on this creator tradition. You've got the gospel and in the gospels, what is the pinnacle thing that Jesus does, especially according to Mark? It's the suffering under Pontius Pilate being crucified, dead and buried. What's the, uh, the sort of ethic and theology of the letters. It's believing in a Holy spirit and a broad communion of saints, a community of all people in the forgiveness of sins through the redemption of christ the resurrection of the body like it really is i mean like uh, the 39 articles say they're they ought to be thoroughly received and believed for they may be proved by most certain warrants of holy scripture like i think that traditional line of the creeds a summary of biblical t- tradition especially with the apostles creed is extremely true and so that when you deny the apostles creed you're really denying scripture. You agree with that?
0: Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I, I think again, this is the baptist in me that wants to say like that as an individual who has access to God mm-hmm. and communion with the Holy Spirit that um that I can read scripture and understand it, um, and understand what I need from it. Mm-hmm. I should say, uh, just because I am a Christian doesn't mean I can understand everything about everything about the Bible, which mm-hmm. is what you know. Unfortunately, a lot of people in my tradition think. But I, so I think that on the one hand, there is the ability for me to read. For instance, you know, he descended into hell, or he descended into to the dead, like. I don't know what I think about that passage, mm-hmm. uh, about that line of this, and I think, like I'm not denying scripture if I read scripture and deny that Christ descended to hell. Um, I'm denying a line of this creed. So um, unless
1: you take uh, what is it, First Peter, he went and preached those.
0: To those in prison mm-hmm. isn't, that, isn't that the word he uses i don't remember yeah. if it uses hell it or even hell, the dead oh,
1: yeah. it says it's preached it, to the those the spirits of those who died in the
0: yeah so so i i guess i could say i can comfortably say the words he descended <laughs> into the dead but i'm not gonna be i don't know what that you know really sure means I, i'm not a biblical scholar so i don't and I haven't really studied that. Sure, yeah. So, so that gets back to you know, you talk about this as a summary of like the, the most important things. Who's gonna read through all of you know old and new testaments and think that line has to be in there? Hmm. That's a that's like almost a throwaway line in a later New Testament letter.
1: Hmm. That's a good point.
0: I mean, I don't... Yeah. I don't know who that would be directed at. I don't know...
1: I wonder... I feel like I've picked this up somewhere, so I don't want to take credit for it. But my sense is that what the line refers to, what it really is trying to get at, is whatever happens to us when we die, it happened to Jesus. And so that Christ really did die. Like, he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. Like, whether that's... uh, We looked it up before, like, catota or something. Ad infernos is the Latin. Like, to the place, to the lower parts. Whether that's being buried under the earth or the sort of orthodox harrowing of hell.
0: Okay, but this gets into... This is the same question of Sarcos' intention or word, which is authoritative. Yeah. Like, if it's he descended into the inferno... Or just the lower parts mm-hmm. so the Greek word is the lower parts the a, Latin word is inferno is that well
1: yeah here it would probably just mean infernos is like the lower parts Okay. yeah unfortunately un, I don't believe
0: is that kind of a more later kind of English take yeah. on inferno meaning flames it
1: comes to mean that later like odd infernos like uh, Dante is yeah. uh, writing you know inferno and whatnot in um, just the traditional Latin I think that could be just be used for the like that's what the word means like the physical word means like blowness
0: Hmm.
1: which is still like that's if we're going with the intent and sort of the best i can imagine of the intent if they're not literally just pulling on this passage of peter what they would what would seem important to the early church is to say that christ truly died So, he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. Whatever happens to us when we die, that's what happened to Christ when he died. To just really press home on the gravity um, and the reality of it. In the same way that he would be truly physically raised, he was truly physically dead, and it wasn't just, you know.
0: Yeah. I'll take it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so if we put it in that context, is there any line of the Apostles' Creed which it would be denying scripture to deny
0: the baptist in me is like you know no creed but the bible (laughs) (laughs) this
1: is a creed this is the bible right like
0: yeah i like the apostles creed
1: so the early reformers had a line which is sort of passed into modern theology especially through bart that the preaching of the word of god is the word of god the idea behind that line is that when you take an idea from Scripture and you embody it in your own words, it still remains the same idea. And so that if I speak um, the uh, the, I- the idea of Paul's notion of justification, if I study Paul and come to understand his, doctrine of justification and the way that that relates to uh, my own obedience versus God's gift of grace. If I take that scripture and compress it into a communicable idea, a rational idea, and I express it with new words to my congregants as a priest or pastor, then I am speaking the word of God in a real sense, because this is drawn from scripture. And it's always possible that you could be mistaken so you might not but the idea is that the the words the ideas drawn from Scripture when spoken in a new mode in, in new words are still the words of Scripture are still the ideas of Scripture and I think that's what we can say here about the Apostles Creed is it's the ideas of Scripture the words of Scripture molded into a compressed and usable form um, we haven't mentioned this yet but a form through which uh, the church would admit new members This was the thing that you confess when you're getting baptized You say, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of Heaven and Earth And in Jesus," and you confess this and then you're baptized You're initiated into the faith because you've said Yes, I do believe Scripture I believe the uh, creedalizing of the Word of God Which is therefore the Word of God and therefore you're brought into this community because you've aligned yourself with the content of the community
0: yeah i and i think that there's there's and i guess this would this would be going back to your question of how is this different from the barman declaration or something similar what's different is that this uh while this may have been intended for you know, particular situation that the church was facing it, it's also timeless and probably intentionally so hmm. there's never a time when we don't need to confess these things hmm. and, and the fact that it's been confessed for these 2000 years I think further cements its authoritative kind of weight mm-hmm. um so, it's, it's composed very early. Do we have a date for Mm-mm. composition?
1: Irenaeus. Um, so, he has a line in here about uh, the precursors to it, or sort of the patristic um, movements around it. And he has some quotes from Irenaeus that are very close. Um, but we don't have a first,
0: or at least a, an earlier than that yeah. it, like, manuscript of it. So... We have very early. The yep. church is adopting this.
1: Debatably, like some of the more critical scholars, would put the, that date as uh, almost the same time as the later New Testament books. Yeah. Though I wouldn't want to push them that late.
0: Yeah. That should incline us to be very hesitant to deny anything that it says. I think, like we've talked about, with authority of the early church fathers and. Kind of how that, how that flow of authority works, kind of as we have, we get closer and closer to the source of the faith, um, in, the, in the apostles' teaching of Christ. I think this has authoritative weight to it, and and denying it is not wise.
1: <laughs> okay, so I have a maybe a more directed question then Mm -hmm. given both of our authority of scripture which we agree on and the authority of the other church which we agree on is this actually scripture is this actually scripture in the same way that second peter is or hebrews is or the didache is
0: now when you say actually scripture just to define that i'm assuming you mean like authoritative text yeah like something that when we if you did, speak, yeah. when we speak this, we're speaking the word of God. Yeah.
1: Uh, Unless it can be, you know, overruled by a higher, a higher authority
0: than yes. I would say it is, I, I feel like there's too much baggage to the word scripture or like there's too much going on there. Maybe I'd put it on with like higher than the Didache. Hmm. I was going to say I'd have to look more into like the date and kind of see where it falls in the date because kind of the way I think of authority is how close is it to the actual apostles? And the closer it is to the apostles, the more likely it is to be actual
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: distillation of their teaching.
1: And so for those of us who haven't, or those of, listeners who haven't like really listened to our reflection on that, because sometimes people jump in at different points, the basic idea there is not just that it's early, but that uh, it is what people believed the apostles to have taught yeah and the apostles teaching is the authoritative thing okay keep going
0: yeah so uh so i was gonna say i think it i would look at the date and then that would play a role in how i understand its authority but but there's also the fact that this is kind of just like sentences that the bible says Mm -hmm. so (laughs) i don't know that this is I don't know that the date would change its authoritativeness. It's just sentences that the Bible teaches, hmm. so it's authoritative in the sense that it's just saying because it's the pre It's of not the saying anything different. It's just the word of God. Yeah, so so the Didache talks about things that the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about. It makes statements that the that the Bible doesn't explicitly make. So that would have kind of a there are some question marks there. Yeah. This isn't doing that. This isn't a commentary. Um, it's it's just saying the Bible says these things right so I'd say it's more authoritative but only because it's just saying what the Bible says so I don't know that that's kind of a it doesn't seem to me a hot take to say that this is scripture yeah I guess you know the more I think about it
1: yeah uh, let me let me throw a take out for you this is not also not going to be a hot take take Here, out here's my take on that uh, this is scripture in the same sense that Hebrews is uh, and in the same sense that Second uh, Peter is because it is what the early church believed the apostles to have taught the earliest church believed the apostles to have taught and so that if the reason Hebrews is authoritative even though it's anonymous is because the early Christians thought this sounds enough like what Paul said and that is
0: actually what like, just to be clear, Hebrews was included in the canon of Scripture because they said, and there there is one specific, very important person who, like, one of the people who compiled a list of New Testament books, and he says, I know this isn't Paul, but it sounds enough like Paul to be Scripture, so we're mm-hmm. going to consider it to be Scripture. Like, right. everyone knew Paul didn't write this. Some people thought maybe an apprentice did, like a disciple did. So... I just want to, like, add yeah. more weight to what you're saying. The, the earliest church who put together our canon, they chose books because this sounds like what the apostles taught.
1: Yeah. And so, like, that, maybe that's a very early justification of the principle, the Protestant principle, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God, right? Like, the message mm-hmm. of the apostles is the message for the apostles. And so I would throw out there, like, this is as authoritative as Hebrews because it's so widespread And so early and no one really has no one in the early church doesn't say this is the gospel according to paul and peter and james yeah and so that i mean this it's included in prayer books and we like prayed each morning in prayer but like it should be in the bible
0: speaking of prayer (laughs) let's move on to our second book so the Lord's Prayer based on the text given in this book is our Father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil for the kingdom the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen.
1: Yeah, Tyler, uh, you focused on this one. I also read it, but you read it for the purposes of talking about this.
0: Uh, what did you pull from it? What, what were your thoughts? So, um, again, this is the Lord's Prayer. This one is written by Wesley Hill, who uh, is a New Testament scholar and a well-known Author, popular author, has written on issues of uh, of uh, celibacy and uh, Christian sexuality, um, and in this he he also discusses some on sexuality, and which I think we're really kind of pull into what we were talking before about how these these guides are very relevant to issues that are in the air mm-hmm. right now. So as you don't often read the Lord's Prayer and think about sexuality or, or race, uh, racism. And, but Wesley does, uh, Dr. Hill does an amazing job of pulling these issues that are on our minds, some people's minds more than others, because they're part of people groups that are, um, oppressed or hurting. And he does a really great job, I think, of pulling those into the Lord's Prayer and I'd say the main thing that I took away from this kind of is a, again, devotional aspect of it. I think what I got from it is that uh, the Lord's Prayer is a very intimate thing. And I think what Dr. Hill wants us to see is when we're praying this, it should be a very intimate moment that uh, causes us to reflect on kind of our position um, before before God but in a way that's uh, he spends a lot of time talking about Father and why do we call God Father? And he discusses what what many people do whenever we what many like pastors talk about whenever we talk about God as father. A lot of people don't like that because they've had abusive fathers. Um, or they have issues with you know the patriarchal nature of that. He has very sensitive discussion toward that, but at the same time, he wants us to see this this relationship that and that is invoked by the word father. And one stunning thing that he pointed out that I never knew is that in Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, God is only referred to his father a handful of times, like fifteen times. In all of that, and then we get to the New Testament, and it's it's all over the place, I feel like. Yeah,
1: I think he said 76 times by the time you get to the end of Luke, and then in the hundreds by the end of John.
0: (laughs) That's, I mean, that's baffling to me. And he does a great job of focusing in on when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, we are in a new this new covenant where we are seeing our relationship with god is different um it's it's intimate we are part of this this family and god is a loving father who who cares for us and then each aspect of the prayer that we're praying um, delves into the intimate issues that we face in our lives so when he talks about this section on forgive us our sins he brings up Augustine and talks about how we are always in need of forgiveness of, mm-hmm. of sin, and having this view of God as Father, this view of God as so intimately loving, um, kind of changes the way we ask for forgiveness. The way we pe- petition God for forgiveness is not a—it's uh, not this cultic kind of ritual. That we have to perform which he he gets at actually at the very beginning of his discussion of it how the disciples ask him how do we pray and that's a common thing apparently that teachers would do is tell their uh, students this is how you petition the gods or this is how you petition God you have to do these things and say these words say these chants and perform such and such and Jesus says none of that go to a quiet place this is intimate Hmm. Um, And so uh, So yeah That's a really convoluted way of saying That the intimacy of the prayer Is what I think I really got out of this
1: His discussion, so you were mentioning earlier His discussion on the forgiveness of sins I I thought it was Incredibly profound um, The way that it's sort of discussed So um, Wesley Hill is Episcopalian This prayer is prayed if you do the daily office three times every single day, and then every single church service, like, it's flowing throughout your whole life. Um, And he has a discussion in there about, well, uh, if you haven't murdered anyone or had an affair, why, why are you confessing anything? And he says that, like with the Apostles' Creed, like the other things that we've talked about, we can use the words to peer more deeply into ourselves and understand something more deeply about ourselves that there is always something to confess but even more importantly there's always a god who's ready to forgive there's this really moving discussion of a rembrandt painting yeah. i think at the end of it where he gives the painting like in a black and white print and then sort of discusses it and talks about it's the uh, the prodigal son and the father i um, embracing him and Wesley Hill says he looks at the painting every, almost every single time. He prays the prayer, right? So at his home, it's right in front of his little kneeler thing, and he's looking at it as he's praying the prayer. And so that even though no matter how, no matter how good we think we are, there is still something to confess. No matter how bad we are, there is still a father who's already embracing
0: us. Mm-hmm. Which um, I'm glad you brought that up. Something that I wanted to point out going back to our kind of discussion of what these books are and what they do and how how they do a great job of bringing in all of these lenses through which to view the the text that we read through the art and through tradition and through the way that the book is laid out i think that was a really perfect uh, little insert that they did it's like a it's like an Appendix to the book, like an extra little snippet that we get, where he discusses Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son being embraced by the father. Um, I think that section sort of encapsulates what this series is doing. It, like Gerhard said, it it just describes how Wesley Hill will will pray the Lord's Prayer with this painting in literally in front of his face, and so now he prays differently this prayer because he has that in front of him. And so I think these books, because we have kind of everything that they're giving us, everything we put in front of us now that we, when I say the Lord's Prayer now, I'm gonna think differently be, after having read this book. When I confess the Apostles' Creed, I'll think differently after having read uh, uh, Ben Myers's book. I just thought that that little excursus was really a perfect summary of what, what these books do. Yeah, um, I'm not just saying that to because uh, Lexum sent us free books. I, <laughs> just, I, I it's really, nice, but yeah, yeah, no, I really, we really do them. believe these
1: things. Like we yeah. wouldn't have done an ep- <laughs> like we wouldn't have got on here and talked about how bad they were if we didn't like them. But we also just wouldn't have done an episode devoted to them if we didn't like them. Yeah, we just ignored them, you know. Yeah, but we 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 think they're great. Yeah, uh, I know of at least one Sunday school class going through uh, the I think the Lord's Prayer one.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah. Very cool. The one thing I wish there there would have been a discussion on, which these are meant to be small, but I wish there would have been a discussion on the um, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us or you know the traditional forgive us the trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us or what the Orthodox say when they pray the Lord's Prayer and what the Greek text says is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or to clarify, the Matthew version says forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Luke, because this prayer is recorded in two different places, in Luke it says uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, and and I, I saw one comment on that because i was looking it up and after i read this book someone said that 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 they think that the luke version is to say only god forgives sins and we forgive debts
1: huh that's interesting
0: yeah um but i think i guess especially in i, I mean this is actually true of of pretty much any period of the world that the debts and debtors language i think of course gerhard and i y'all know our political leanings <laughs> we're going to talk about how this kind of the economic implications of the of that version of the prayer i think are right yeah to be spoken
1: and this is something that um i believe it's jacob of sarug a syriac writer who in his homily on the Lord's Prayer makes this explicit and says that if you don't forgive those whose financial debts you hold, God will not forgive your uh, personal moral debts. So that God will not forgive you for lying if you don't forgive your brother the you know 20 bucks he owes you. Hmm. Or more importantly, if you don't forgive uh, your debtor as a banker or an organization or a company uh the hundred thousand dollars they own in student debt you know, or a uh, you know, mortgage or something like that
0: yeah which is why the church opposed usury yeah forever
1: <laughs> yeah so um it turns out that as my sort of uh grad school has gone on I have ended up focusing on the question of usury in sort of early modern Christian life. And something that I found is that, so usury means lending out money and then charging interest. You are being usured uh, if you have a student loan debt. In today's normal, meaning usury means like a usurious rate so that you're, being charged like a credit card amount of interest but in classical christian terminology usury means any amount of interest it could be one percent interest Um, and something that i found is that pretty much wherever you look up until the reformation usury is sin holding debt against someone and then using that debt to make more money is sin and i mean that by definition means that god will not forgive your debts if you're not repenting of your sin right
0: and and even i mean chrysostom says that being rich is theft Mm -hmm. so that that is that is debt that you owe you know like you people are indebted
1: yeah the problem with capitalism is you eventually run out of other people's (laughs) money (laughs)
0: Yeah, so, I, I mean, that's that's my... I mean, that's like our politics. And so, of course, we would want to talk about the debts and mm-hmm. debtors. But it's also in the text. The, the Greek text of both um, Matthew and Luke uses the word debt. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wish there would have been a discussion of that. But that's that's the only thing is that, man, I wish... I could have read more, you know. Yeah. If that's my only complaint, then it's a pretty, pretty good book.
1: Yeah, we're yeah, we're not saying that it was a bad job. It's a good discussion of, forgive us our sins, if we forgive those who sin against us. It's full of reflections on like, like I was mentioning earlier, like the profound and endless nature of our sin, the endless nature of God's grace, and then Luther's um, sort of reflection on. Does God forgive you because you forgive sins, and so is forgiving other sins a work? Like, good discussions in there, and very good stuff. As modern uh, American socialist Christians, we're always gonna say that uh, <laughs> the personal is political, the theological is political. But yeah. yeah. So Tyler, if someone does not forgive someone's financial debts do they go to hell if i if you owe me 20 dollars and i insist that you pay me back is that damnable sin or if someone is working at a bank or no forget working they're just workers if someone owns a bank is that damnable sin or is that maybe we could borrow the catholics term venial sin hmm Is that something that you get forgiven of by just praying the Lord's prayer each day? Or is that something that you really need to confess long and hard about?
0: (laughs) You mean repent of and do something about it? Change your life? Yeah. Uh, So Wesley Hill actually does say that kind of a Christian understanding of sin is to get to the point where we admit that murdering someone is on the same moral level as... uh, telling a joke at someone's expense Mm -hmm. like behind their back knowing that it would hurt them Mm -hmm. but you know getting gain for yourself by getting a laugh at someone else's expense Um, so is any sin venial Mm -hmm. in that
1: yeah I mean I just disagree with that argument I I don't
0: know that I would agree with that, I think kind of, it, I, I do see a difference in sins.
1: And Jesus says like, um, you know, to Pilate, um, you're committing a sin, but the people handed me over to you committing a greater sin. Hmm. And I just don't, I mean, you can make that argument from James, I guess. I, I don't, I don't agree with that reading of James. I think that James is saying breaking one law, uh, is offending God. And breaking another law is also offending god and offending god is the big part but i just don't i just don't really see how or i don't see why we should be expected to think that murdering someone is no worse than lying yeah. um so i i actually would want to retain the venal mortal distinction and i think Just in my sort of own world of research, Luther's discussion on trade and usury is really interesting here because he says that uh, you can be a merchant. That's fine. Merchants have to upcharge their property. That's fine. Uh, But you have to do it well. Yeah. You have to do it at only upcharging for the amount of labor you put in I mean being a merchant is work you're traveling from one place to another and the property won't get there if you don't like shipping cargo is work it's essentially what a merchant does and so that uh, sometimes a merchant will accidentally charge too much and sometimes they'll accidentally charge too little and that uh, the charging too much is a sin but it's not one you committed uh, openly with full heart with uh, intention and uh, that's the key difference in my mind is the intention of the sin to make it something like venal or mortal. What does uh, the psalmist say? Like, keep me from intentional sins, then my hands will be pure.
0: I'd also want to say there's a difference between, hey, you owe me five bucks, and hey, you owe me a crushing amount of debt, which <laughs> will destroy your life if yeah. I actually demand it back. Yeah, fair. Um, and I am. In the process of making your life much more difficult Mm. than it should be by demanding it back yeah so you know uh, student loans or health you know maybe even more more so like health costs yeah putting someone into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt just so that they can have medical treatment Mm. like okay we'll let you live if you become our slave yeah like I don't I don't think like pharmaceutical and medical CEOs will be in heaven right yeah
1: if they do it will be a measure of extreme grace yeah. they will get in the same way which this... I wouldn't
0: put it past yeah. God to be of extreme grace right. but but yeah. if we're going to read the you know I mean you you ask are these things that have to be repented of mm-hmm. when when Jesus came to Zacchaeus he said do this Mm -hmm. you know repent and he did Mm -hmm. when Jesus went to the rich young ruler he said do this sell all your possessions and give it to the poor those are the people you've been robbing all this time anyway Mm -hmm. and the dude refused and that's when Jesus said it's easier for we we all know the passage it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle which means you know it's pretty darn hard
1: (laughs) maybe uh I feel like a a good analogy here will be, um, so will bankers, CEOs, will they be in heaven? Will slave owners be in heaven? Hmm. If you owned a slave um, at a time when the the structurally economic system said that was okay, and so not many Christians thought about it, is that a very major sin that could keep you out of heaven? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do we know for sure that Jonathan Edwards... Uh, doesn't get forgiven for that we don't know for sure um i think it's a very similar situation in that bankers are holding people in a neo um globalized capitalist version of slavery um, and this becomes very clear when you move to latin america which um, the debt crises that the international monetary fund and the world bank and um, which are in large part just extensions of u.s state power um sort of leverage the debts on latin american countries into making them essentially u.s colonies um and forcing them to open up and give away their land to u.s corporations and things like that will the person who oversees that process be in heaven maybe by god's grace but um if they are, it's a gift of God's uh, kindness to someone who, if, I think maybe, maybe it has to do with, did they, deep down with them, did they know that they were sinning and just chose not to repent, or were they honest about it, right? Mm-hmm. Did they honestly think that being a banker could be moral, or did they know that it couldn't and then pushed it down? That might be something that yeah. God considers.
0: Which I think, getting back to the Lord's Prayer, like, I think that repetition... I, I wish I had that more in, in my tradition to say the Lord's Prayer often. To constantly be confronted with the fact that I have debtors. To constantly be confronted with the fact that I could have something. Yeah. Um... And to ask forgiveness, even for the things that we don't know, the, the, the sins that we don't know that we've committed.
1: Right. And that, I mean, in just a normal, traditional, even evangelical way, when you pray this, you are forgiven. When you ask for forgiveness, God will forgive you. What does the passage in Luke say? Like, uh, will God give a stone to someone who's, will a father give a stone to his son who asks for an egg? we give a serpent to those who ask for um bread in the same way god doesn't give you not forgiveness when you ask for forgiveness god really does forgive you when you pray this yeah if you're not just reciting it for a script in a movie if you're if you're saying it it doesn't even have to go down to the deepest depths of your heart if you want to believe it even god will forgive your sins if you forgive the sins of those who sinned against you and if you're not holding their debts above them hmm. what does jesus say uh is it's the end of the prayer in matthew right he says uh, for if you do not forgive those who sin against you neither will your father in heaven forgive you of your sins hmm. if you don't have that against you and you're honestly trying to live the life of repentance then god will forgive you
0: i think you know it's easy for me to to rail against you know the masters of mankind uh you know ceos and bankers and and slave owners because that's not me Mm -hmm. something that uh you know I, i guess that wanting wesley hill to talk about debts and debtors is so that you know a little a little bit so that i can be like yeah get them but he brings up the passage give us our daily bread he talks about how those of us who have everything we need that passage should stick in our minds more. Mm. Like especially praying this through Lent, a time of, of fasting and giving up, you know, the the extras. Just to really see how much extra we, we have and didn't even realize we had. To pray, give us our daily bread and think about what would it mean to not have daily bread physically? Mm. Um, I don't know what that would look like. I've never been that poor. I've never been destitute which which that daily bread also of course transitions into thinking of the eucharist that we always have christ there and and that spiritually but so i think the layers of the lord's prayer how how much they affect the way we think about the world as it is physically day to day and how all of these statements are also spiritual Well, I expected this to be a mini-episode, and we, uh, as yeah, usual, <laughs> got into You didn't <laughs> <No>. you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um, again, huge thanks to Lexham Press for sending us these wonderful books. I'm looking forward to uh, the rest of the series.
1: Yeah, Lexham Press is great. Uh, ben Myers, Wesley Hill are great. They both are on Twitter. You should follow them. Follow at Lexham. Is it just at Lexham Press?
0: Yeah, Lexham Press. L e x h a m press
1: they're great they're responsive
0: and they put out good books also follow podcastica patristica at pod patristica on twitter yep we don't really use the facebook page anymore <laughs> yeah because facebook is awful
1: yeah we don't even i don't personally use facebook <laughs> i don't yet.
0: open facebook yeah
1: ever. uh <laughs> if you want to follow our sister pod brother pod uh it's at refpod r-e-f-p-o-d that's reformation podcast it's the same thing but with me and jake robbie doing reformation themed things at the moment we're uh working on uh, was weber right about capitalism uh coming or fusing itself with calvinism
0: oh max weber
1: yeah follow us on twitter i'm at gerhard steuben
0: i'm at tylor standley
1: yeah and if you can't spell gerhard steuben good luck or tyler yeah it's they'll be on the app i think that you're listening to on yeah we have it in the metadata but that's enough pointless promotion yeah
0: what's our outro (laughs) i can't remember our
1: yeah it's on brothers of love and peace.
0: Farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen. Bye.